Welcome to the Auditorium, a portal to the fringes of culture. Hello and welcome to the Auditorium Podcast with me, your host, Dr. David Bramwell, and my co-host, who is late, Mr. Mountfield. Here he is. What the hell have you got there? About 40 packets of biscuits. Where did you, you get those betcha. from? Got those with the old five-finger discount, my friend. They are free as you like. <laughs> You've nicked them. Well, it's a harsh word, Dave. Harsh word. I mean, I liberated them. Uh, from, from where? From the biscuit machine outside the snack machine. It's broken. If you just hit the button, they just come out. So, uh, oh, and you've taken the lot? I filled my boots. Yeah. Well, if I didn't do it, someone else would. I know, but that's no kind of attitude, is it? Well, I mean, the way I see it, I'm all right, Jack. Uh, sod you. That's how I feel about your You're sounding, I hate to say it, like a Tory. What? There's no such thing as society. The, the Margaret Thatcher. Uh, the, the T word. Oh, sorry, not, in, not in this podcast. Well, come on, yeah, society. Ooh, yeah, all very well. But, you know, but the way I look at things is me and that's it, really. Is that, that's the, surely that's how everyone uh, views the world, isn't it? No, no, it isn't. And in fact, our guest speaker today, Steve Colgan, might help you see things in a, in a, in a different way. Now, yeah. you, you're. <laughs> To be fair, give him his chance. Give him his give him his fifteen minutes, Dave. And and also, he's you know he's he's an intelligent man. He's he's a man who has who's been a high ranking police officer in the past, but now he's better known as one of the researchers for the TV program QI. 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 Yeah, it's got you know it. You've seen it. It's uh, it stands for quite interesting. It's got that guy um, Fry. What's his name? Well, Martin Fry from ABC. No, 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 no. Stephen Fry and oh, um, yeah. Davis. What's uh, Andrew Davis, the uh, BBC Two playwright. No, Dickie Davis, the the sports Dickie presenter. Davis, yeah, sports yeah. Presenter. So it so he so Steve Colgan writes uh, does a lot of the research for uh, for QI. He's one of the QI elves, but right. but he's he's passionate about how we can reimagine crime, how we can live in a crime free future. He's a utopianist, and and I think you should give him your full attention. So here he is recorded live in the Brighton Festival in 2015 in our auditorium venue, Mr. Stephen Colgan. I'm currently a QI elf, and I have been a QI elf sort of uh, involved with the show to some degree for about five years or so. And I'm now one of the main scriptwriters. Um, but before that, I was wearing a very different kind of hat. I was a cop for 30 years in London. And... Uh, that's kind of the period of my life I'm going to talk about and, and how I think it is possible to live in a relatively safe and crime-free society. Um, before that, as you can see, I also tried a different hat. I tried to be a chef, but wasn't much good at that. And before that, I was a small, precocious Cornish child who basically asked lots and lots of questions of my teachers, got in a lot of trouble, failed all my qualifications, uh, got to the end of my school and thought, what the hell am I going to do now? And my homicide detective father said, well, what are you going to do with your life, boy? And I said, oh, I don't know. Um, be a rock star. And he you know, as you do at that age. He said, well, shame you're not man enough to be a police officer. That's the sort of job for you. And I said, yeah, I couldn't do that. Anyway, long story short, my 18th birthday came along, lots of beer, woke up, some kind of weird written contract in my pocket saying I'd accepted a six-month bet that I couldn't be a cop. For six, yeah, There was a bet I made with my dad... He'd notarised it with two other cops on the back of his form that I couldn't spend six months uh, as a cop. In, and I thought, well, I'm going to do it in that London. 
So I came up from Cornwall to London and basically six months became 30 years because once I got my teeth into it and, and started finding out there was much more to it than just catching the bad guys and annoying motorists. Um, it's actually a really extraordinary job, but it's like most jobs, is what you make of it. To give you some idea of, of my sort of view of policing, having grown up in Cornwall, um, you know, it's, it's quite nice down there. I'm sure some of you have been on holiday. It's, it's got its problems. I mean, it's, I don't even know this. It's actually the poorest county in England. It gets aid from Europe because employment is, is, is appallingly low. Um, it's very good in the summer months, you know, people working in restaurants, you know, selling you pasties, you know, getting the money on the pedalos and things like that. But in the winter, it's really quite bleak for a lot of families. It's very, very poor down there. But I grew up thinking that, you know, this is what the world was like because there wasn't much crime. There wasn't much crime when I was growing up at all. My brother's up from Cornwall at the moment visiting me and he'll tell you the same. You could walk around the streets quite happily. And there were quite big towns I lived in, Penzance, Helston, places like this. And you felt safe wherever you went. Policing was very much community-based. You knew all the local cops. The cops all knew you. You didn't go get in trouble because there was a kind of, you know, a real social network, a social network that's actually social, where neighbours knew each other and where, you know, everyone in the street, whether you liked everyone in the street or not, didn't matter, you knew who they were. And I knew if I got into trouble anywhere, news of it would get back to my mother before I got home. Because that's the way it worked. I came to London, 1980 I came to London, was thrown into a war zone. I mean, the riots were just starting to kick off then. It wasn't long after that. We had the miners' strike. We had um, Greenham Common. We had IRA bombs going off once a month. It was a bloody nightmare. And, but the one thing that struck me, the real difference I found between the two styles of policing was that in London, it seemed there'd been a complete divorce between the police and the public. It was almost as if the public was seen as a kind of inconvenience. Uh, I can honestly remember hearing one of my colleagues once saying, Do you know, this would be a pretty good job if it wasn't for the public. Because, because they got in the way of getting on with it. And the, and the other thing that really struck me was that everything was focused on catching bad guys. Now, you may think, well, what's wrong with that? It's a good thing. You know, there are certain newspapers that we all know and love who are always going about, why aren't the cops catching more bad guys instead of doing this, that, and the other? Sir Richard Main's primary objects. My very first week at Hendon, I had to learn that word perfect. It was written by a guy called Sir Richard Main, who was one of the first commissioners of the Met Police. And it was written as a kind of mission statement for policing just after the formation of the Metropolitan Police, which, although it wasn't the first police force, it was the first sort of authorised and structured and properly funded by the government police force. And, um, yeah, we had to learn this, like a mantra, off by heart. And what does the first one say? The primary object of efficient police is the prevention of crime. Now, this is where I had issues, and exactly the same as the precocious little tit I was in school, I was the same at Hendon Police College, because I say, so when are we going to learn something about prevention? And they go... Well, you don't have to worry about that. Just, just get what you've got to get into the syllabus into you, because we've got to cram lots of law and lots of powers of arrest and lots of things like that into you, and then you hit the streets, and then you learn that stuff. Well, I did, you know, 16 weeks at Hendon, went out to my first station, and I said, what do we do about prevention then? And said, no, 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 that's the crime prevention officer does that, who was this vaguely sentient 70-year-old, nearly ex-police drunk who sat in an office and basically had to service the entire borough. His job was to go out, basically, well, his job seemed to consist of going to really nice um, conferences by, you know, hosted by Chubb Locks and people like this and fire alarm companies. And, and the rest of the time going around to people's houses and saying, should change those windows or change those locks. That was the sole crime prevention that was going on. It just struck me as, as, as very, very wrong because all the efforts were being put into catching the bad guy and none of the efforts were being put into stopping the bad guys from being bad guys. Now, the issue I have with that is if... I won't ask for a show of hands here because you all look reasonably normal. But if I was to say, what would you rather have happened to you? Would you rather be robbed, but we catch the bad guys, or would you rather not be robbed, 
it will be a, hopefully a very small proportion to say, rather, you, oh, I'd love being robbed. Yeah, as long as you catch him, I'm happy. You know? The thing is, most people rather not have crime happen to them. And I think deep down the police would rather that crimes weren't happening because we've got to do all the paperwork. And then you've got to do the investigation. And that takes you away from maybe investigating more serious issues. You know, the stuff that really requires a great deal of time and effort to break up, you know, organised crime, terrorism, those sorts of things. So I kept stressing, you know, why can't we do stuff to prevent crime? And I'd be told, no, 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 your job's to catch bad guys. Now, I should say, another thing that was in our way at the time, it's changed a little bit now, although not much, but it has changed a bit now, is the measures by which police success was measured, uh, the, the figures that uh, it was measured by. You see, if you want to measure the effect that the police are having on crime... What you should be measuring is the outputs. What you should be measuring is, is crime going down and are people feeling safer in their houses? Makes sense, doesn't it? But if you think about it, that's quite hard to measure. Because if I put an initiative in place and burglary seemed to drop by 30%, how do I then prove that it's what I did that got the 30% drop? Maybe the burglar's on holiday. You know, maybe he's got a new girlfriend. Maybe, you know, uh, he's gone into a different, uh, more lucrative area of crime. There could be any number of reasons. It could be that the... You know, some people have had some double glazing fitted or a few more alarms fitted. There could be any number of reasons. And trying to tie down that it was definitely police activity that created that 30% drop is really hard and takes time and effort and no one wanted to do it. What was much easier was to measure inputs. How many arrests, how many stops and searches, how many court appearances, how many convictions, how many sick days, all those sorts of things. So those were the metrics by which police were measured so they could go back to their home office and say, look how effective we're being with public money. So all the, everything was pushing cops to try and get as many figures as possible, but that wasn't stopping crimes from happening. Now, I haven't got long to talk here. I could talk about this all night, and believe me, I have. Um, sometimes all the audiences learned is endurance, but nevertheless, you know, it's, it's a subject very dear to my heart. I'm not in the police anymore, and I haven't been for, for five years now, over five years, but it keeps coming back to haunt me because people keep asking me to come in and do cons consultation work and things. But I just want to leave you with a couple of stories that are showing you how the prevention thing can make such a big difference that's so much more powerful than the bad guys. And little changes and little things you can do to make things better. Interesting metaphor for my career here. Um, dustbins. Now, at the moment, all you can tell me about that street is that it's bin day. Yep. So what about, say, six hours later? What I can tell you is that the owners of number 30 probably aren't at home and haven't pulled their bins back onto their property. Now, burglars know this. Of course they do. They will target a particular street. They'll think, well, we'll do this street, and they'll look at all the bins that aren't taken back in. Okay, and then over the course of a couple of weeks, a pattern will emerge and they'll say, right, we definitely know that number 30, no one takes the bins in between the bins being uh, put out in the morning and, say, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock at night. So that house is probably safe. Let's go case it. You know, they don't want hard targets. Burglars don't want to meet you. That's why nearly all, not all, but nearly all domestic burglaries happen during the day and nearly all business burglaries happen at night because they don't want to meet people. People are complicated. That puts things in the way. And the more obstacles you put in the way, the better. Now, what's the best possible way of really messing up the burglars here is to basically take your neighbour's bin in. Now, if you've got places like where I grew up in Cornwall, that would be second nature. It wouldn't be any problem at all for me to have gone next door, knocked on the door and say, listen, I'm not going to be in uh, on Tuesday afternoons. Can you take the bin in for me? And they would have gone, yeah, fine, sure. And there were several places I tried this in London where I would say to people... Uh, can you take your neighbour's bins in? You get the usual curmudgeon, the old sod who say, nothing to do with me. Blah, blah, blah. But then what I did was I had stickers made, shiny stickers that said, you know, I'm a good neighbour, I take the bins in. And of course, then the curmudgeons say, I haven't got a sticker. And then they do it. 
you know, there are little nudges. I could, again, I could talk forever about nudging and little subtle things you can do to change things. But yeah, just trying to get that sort of sense of good neighbourliness. And it doesn't have to be huge. You don't have to be Mr. Sociable or Mrs. Sociable. You know, just knowing your neighbours either side. If everyone knew their neighbours either side, then for a start, you'd get a lot more barbecue invitations. But more importantly, your next door neighbour will know the ones either side of them. And you get that kind of sort of huge Venn diagram developing all around the area you live where everyone is in some way connected to everyone else. That's what happened in Cornwall when I was growing up. That kind of happened naturally there. But in cities, certainly in London, it just wasn't happening and it needed a little push. Uh, I should say, after I'd been doing policing and annoying all my bosses for about 18 years and screwed all my chances of promotion and uh, all the other things I did, uh, there was a kind of a sea change, basically because a few senior officers in the Met went on some jollies to America, saw some really interesting stuff that was being done in San Diego and North Carolina and a few other places and came back and said, we want this thing called POP, problem-oriented policing, where you, you put all the police resources into sort of solving the causes of problems rather than just picking up afterwards. And I'm going, I've been doing that for 18 years! And it wasn't just me. I'm not come some kind of weird Robin Hood character. You know, <laughs> the only one, there were lots of cops who thought the same way. But if they wanted to have any kind of career, you've got to toe the line a little bit. Because certainly above the rank of inspector, it's selection from then on. You know, it's not just a case of passing an exam. You've got to basically not, not rock the boat too much and actually sort of save money and be a good cop. And um, so they said, oh, yeah, you've been doing this for a while. And someone else, you've been doing this for a while. And they put us all together. And they put us in a team at Scotland Yard. And they called us the problem-solving unit. Incredibly bad name, because people are coming and say, you know, I'm stuck on 15 across. Uh, you know, my Sudoku doesn't add up. Uh, my wife doesn't understand me. And all this, you know, we had all the ha-ha-ha-ha. But the idea was we would go and look at problems that hadn't been solved by traditional methods, and we'd try and find new ways of dealing with them. Uh, probably the most high-profile one I think we, we, we managed to get into the Daily Mail and upset them with uh, was giving lollipops out at nightclubs. Because we found out that basically all the problems with antisocial behaviour that was being reported from nightclubs was noise. And I'm sorry, ladies, but it was mostly female voices. Well, ladies' voices, a little bit higher, higher register, they carry further. They come out in groups, a little bit drunk, been listening to very loud music, and the noise was carrying far. Give them a lollipop. <laughs> you can't shout when you've got a lollipop in your mouth. You can't shout when you've got a lollipop in your mouth. And, and it's kind of childish and a bit silly, and it gives you a bit of a sugar rush. It really worked, and it, and it meant we didn't have to shut down nightclubs, we didn't have to arrest people and all these other sort of things that happened just with lollipops. This is a, another one we looked at. The Scottish Parliament asked us to look at this one. If you can imagine a big housing estate, huge problems with antisocial behaviour by kids, and they said, yeah, they all need locking up, they all need ASBOs, the parents should be doing more, uh, all these other things. And when people asked the kids what the problem was, they said, we've got nothing to do. They said, well, you've got two football pitches, and you're not even using this one. And they said, but there's a road in the way. Now, there was a tunnel they could go down, but it meant a sort of 800-yard walk to go through the tunnel. So the inference, or at least the assumption, of the adults was they're too lazy. We looked at the problem, and what no one had done is talk to the kids. No one had asked them why they were being troublesome, why they were doing what they do. And what we discovered from talking to them, because heaven forfend, we talked to the bad guys, too, because they're the people who kind of might know why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, we discovered there were basically three groups of kids. There were very young kids, middle-aged kids, and, and older kids. And they didn't play with each other, for obvious reasons they had their own little cliques. Um, the little kids come and play over here on the left-hand pitch, then get bullied off by the middle-sized kids. Then the, middle, and then the little kids go off and kick football around where they shouldn't do. The middle-sized kids would then get bullied off by the big kids. So they go off, get a couple of bottles of Bucky, and get drunk and be abusive and cause hassle, set small fires to wheelie bins and this sort of thing. Then the big kids would play on the pitch till it was time to go to the pub, and off they go. And both pitches would be sitting there, this one pristine. 
They wanted to build a bridge. They wanted to build a tunnel. They wanted to bulldoze all the pitches, that sort of thing. Um, you know, at, at, at a rough estimate, a, a bridge or a new underpass would have cost about half a million. And there were so many other things. We solved the problem for 40 quid. Because what we did was we, by actually understanding what the problem was, by actually looking at this as a community issue and treating the kids as part of that community and asking them what they wanted and why they did what they did, that's how we found out about the three different things. Now, the little kids would play on a little pitch quite happily. And we kind of rechristened those as the little kids' pitches by painting SpongeBob around the walls as well. You know, ownership, bit of a nudge. Uh, the middle-sized kids were happy with the five-a-side side pitch. And then there was the full pitch, which was the adults. And we also found the reason all the kids weren't going through the tunnel was not because they were lazy. It's because the older kids were hanging around in there. That was their place to hang out because they had nowhere else to hang out. No youth shelters, no youth clubs, anything. Simple, isn't it? Just, just take the problem back into the community and look at it in a preventative way and think, what are, the, what are the underlying causes of the problem? Talk to the people involved. And the final little story I'll tell you, because I said time is short. Um, this was a housing estate in South London. We had an emerging gang problem there. There'd been several stabbings. One young lad had recently been killed. And um, it had become a political hot potato because at his funeral, it wasn't his family carrying the coffin. It was his gang, um, his gang friends all wearing scarves over their mouths. And it hit the national news. And the government at the time, Blair's government at the time, went mental over the fact that we'd allowed this to happen. Um, so I was sent down there with some of my colleagues to look at this estate, and what we found was a very, very, probably the most fractured community I've ever seen. It, it consisted basically of four tower blocks and some open areas and communal buildings, and basically no one had anything to do with anyone else. The black people didn't like the white people, the white people didn't like the brown people, you know, the old people hated the young people, everyone hated the kids. You know, it was just one of those horribly fractured communities, and we, we thought, we can somehow try and piece this back together, we might fix it a little bit, and crime might go down, people might start looking out for each other. Really difficult. We tried an international food market. No one turned up. Uh, we converted some um, uh, lock-up garages into some local shops and, and a community arts centre. They burnt it down. Um, it was just a nightmare. And then one day, almost, almost on the point of giving up, I was walking around with a colleague called Neil Henson. And uh, we said, there's got to be some point in commonality. These are all people. They're no, they're, I mean, there are people in London, or there are people in Cornwall, or there are people in Glasgow. They're still people. They've got the same needs. They've got the same wants, same fears. What is it that's lacking here is that anything would get these people to join together and make a community. And at that point, Neil looked at me and he said, do you realize everyone's got a dog? And we looked around and there was, you know, sure enough, there was people walking little yappy dogs and people with these big Rottweilers and, and, and things like this. And so Neil and I looked at each other and in one of those moments said, dog show? We did organise a dog show, and what was extraordinary was watching people talk to each other. When you see a little old lady about this big with some yappy thing on a bit of string, standing next to a big black lad with a, with a big Rottweiler on a lead, and she's having to go at him because his dog's too fat, where you know they would have crossed the road to avoid each other, you know you've started making inroads. And I went back and visited this estate some six months on, once the local police and the community had picked up and run with the, with the ball on this, and, and what we found is that I can't say it was utopia, I can't say it was a perfect society, but what I can say is things were so good that the council had decided to knock the estate down and groups of residents had petitions running to stay together wherever they were rehoused that they would stay together. Now they'd actually found each other, they wanted to stay together and take that community wherever they ended up. But for me, the, the, the thing I found over and over again is whether you lived in the centre of London, whether you lived in Paisley, whether you lived in Cornwall, if you got the community being part of the police. The other, thing that I, uh, the other quote I should have put up is the one from Sir Robert Peel where he said, the police are the public and the public are the police. The only difference is the police are paid eight hours a day to do it. 
everyone's got a part to play in policing. We've all got some degree of... Everyone's got a part to play in, in policing their own community. And that doesn't mean you put on a funny hat and walk around the streets. It just means looking out for your neighbours, looking out for yourselves, the people you, you care about, and your own environment that you live in, that you choose to live in. And if you can make those changes, fantastic. Thanks very much for listening, and thanks for not falling asleep. Steve Golden there. Wonderful talk. Fantastic. And it's sort of all come from the, the, the nudge concept, which is very big in government at the moment, has been for a few years. The idea that you can you can just edge behaviour by, by suggestion, by, by ideas. You don't kind of um, dictate, but you encourage the behaviour you want to encourage by what a place is like. Or You what. sound like you've had quite a transformation in the last 20 minutes. Yeah, I've gone from hard right a sociopath to... Um, lily-livered, liberal, sort of feely, touchy, do-gooder like yourself. Um, however, you know, it's not just us, uh, you know, pinkos who think like this. The right side of the fence, Dave. Correct. The right side of the yeah. fence. Yeah, um, but, but, you know, uh, uh, Mayor Giuliani, fairly hardcore uh, Republican in New York, he, he, he believed in the broken window syndrome. He said, you know, if people see broken windows around, they feel they're in a deprived area, they feel in an area where crime is allowed... Mm. Uh, and if crime is allowed, then it's more likely to happen. And statistically, he was proved right. Uh, so there is a thing, you know, it, it's obvious, it's blindingly obvious when you think about it. Your environment dictates behaviour. Sure. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it does make sense. I'm reminded of, of where I live, um, Lewis. What, what, John Lewis? You live in, in the shop, John Lewis? No, no, Inspector Lewis, uh, the sidekick of, uh, of Morse. Oh, right, right, right. No, the town Lewis, Dave. Oh, the town Lewis um, in Sussex, where, yeah, we, where, we, where we're based, a few miles away from Brighton. It, exactly. Because um, that, that town, someone once described it as a, as a small Cornish town that's been airlifted into the middle of Sussex because it has that level of social cohesion. You know, there's, there's a, it's very inward-looking, um, and it's got uh, a frightening level of uh, low crime and, and people knowing each other. And this is partly because of what? Well, it's it's hard to define, really. Apart from there's there's two factors. There's the kind of push factors, uh, in as much as, uh, for example, there's the World Toad Championships held there. Toad is a local Sussex game that's both difficult and boring. It involves throwing florins into mm. a, a lead and thing, and that's there's also an annual pea throwing competition as well. Dwell flunking, dwell flunking. That's right. Uh, and these things that basically, when they say world, what they mean is about three miles from Lewis. Um, and they tried to make a documentary about the world uh, um, toad. Uh, toad championships, but uh, they wouldn't let them turn the cameras on. They're like, no, no, no. So there's a kind of exclusivity that it's like, no, this is us and no more. But there's also a sense of inward cohesion because of bonfire. Hmm. Uh, the, the whole town used to be ruled by, in the 17th and 18th century, uh, smugglers because it was an inland port, causing chaos on bonfire night, dressed in their smugglers' uh, hoops. Um, and it was such a, you know, the turning justice of the peace over the over the bridge and causing chaos. And so the, the powers that be said, well, look, we have to formalise this. We have to take this Saturnalia and make it safer. And they created uh, bonfire societies in the 19th century. People were still wearing the smuggling outfits, um, but obviously after the smuggling had gone, really. It's kind of a Freddy... Kruger sort of yes, attire, it's isn't stripes, it? various combinations of stripes, and these there's these different bonfire societies. I think there's five. I could be wrong, might be seven, but um, and they all compete on bonfire night for the best bonfire and the best um, tabs, which is a huge effigies that they burn and march through the town. And it's the biggest bonfire event in Europe. Um, I didn't know it's the biggest one in Europe. It is, I, and and 
I know what you're saying. You're saying that people are so focused. Most of the town folk are so focused on the on the bonfire societies and the event itself. They're just too busy to to rob each other's houses. It's not so much that. It's that they know each other through the bonfire societies, mm. uh, and it therefore becomes harder. As as Samuel Johnson said, uh, if a man wishes to know nothing and have everyone know his business, live in the country. If he w- wants to know everything and have no one know his business, live in the city. And Lewis is essentially a big village. And that's the kind of social cohesion, but it's also a form of social control. If everyone knows what you're up to and where you are and what you're doing, it's quite hard to get up to no good. And, of course, if people talk to each other and get together and make tabs and arrange things and everything has to sort of be discussed, you build up this this dendritic network of activities within the town that leaves less space for for malicious behaviour of an anonymous sort, you know. Um, And that's sort of how it works, whereas... Of course, in big cities where people rely on commercially produced entertainment, um, home entertainment, electronic entertainment, and uh, bonds tend to be uh, on friendship bases and producing your own villages of choice through friendship groups, uh, you've only got them to police you. You haven't got the out the wider world to do so. And have you played any role in in helping bring cohesion together? In well, in Lewis? a weird way, yes, because I run a comedy night there. Yes, you do. Yeah, you and do. I'm known as throughout the town as Comedy Dave. I don't know oh. these people, or I don't know three quarters of them, but they know me. And the same crowd turn up every month. And um, if they don't like a joke, they will, as a hive mind, disapprove. And comics get freaked out every time. They're like, "Do you all know each other?" And I go, "Yes, do." Why do you all think the same thing? Because we live in Lewis. It's like it's like Children of the Damned or something. And you know, it has it's a double sided sword. So you're you're doing your bit. You're I'm doing, doing your my bit little for the community. Bit. Yeah. Well, I'm Ooh. mainly trying to earn money. Dave, what's that? That's it's just a, a, oh, a little this, thing just appeared above your head. It's a little bit of a. It's a little. You've bit got of, a halo. Haven't it's only you? a little halo. You've got a halo. I have a little halo. Good on I you. I was given it by the National Pinko Do Gooders Association of Britain. But I can't help notice you've got a little one there, Dave. Have I? Yes. Yes, there it is. Care to tell us about that? Well, well, I, I, I like to do my bit for my community by co co hosting an event called Zocalo, yeah. and I live in an area of Brighton called Hanover. It's about three thousand houses. It's also known as Moosley Mountain. It is also known as the Moosley Mountain, or as one local wit, wit said, uh, "Small houses, big hair." <laughs> <laughs> and, but but Hanover is like anywhere. I mean, not as bad as, as say inner city London, but a place where you know some people know their neighbours and other people can live. You know, you can live for years and and barely say more than hello to the person next door. So I got involved in an event where every year we do a poster campaign, Facebook campaign, Twitter campaign, etc. Mm. For Zicalo Day, where we just get people to go and sit on a chair outside their house for the afternoon and chat to their neighbours. And it really helps with cohesion and bonding and friendships in the neighbourhood. So I... 20, 27 robberies that day, though, wasn't there? there was a, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can sneak in through the yeah, back door. Yeah, everyone's outside eating cake. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, but uh, but I, I now live on a street where I have keys to quite a few of the houses because we do, you know, cat sitting when you know somebody goes away and we share power tools and there's a there's a <laughs> camper van that someone's got you're sniggering at power tools so there's a camp <laughs> sort of a, a camp- weird thing to share well it well, feels like you shouldn't share a man of the man's power tool well not everyone you know not, not everyone needs a a, a, a strimmer you know, a strimmer whatever yeah. that is <laughs> so i i yeah i feel 
I, I enjoy taking part in. And in it's these continued events. for some years now, hasn't it? It's Alan's... been running for a, yeah for a, for five or six years now. And, and, and do you think if you left it, do you think it would? Is it self-propelling now? Because know... there are things like uh, the burning of the clocks in Brighton, which only been going for like. 10, 12 years, mm. and everyone thinks has happened since time immemorial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there are streets that that do their own Zacalos, whether we are involved or not. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's and I know that we've sort of seeded this idea across yeah. different parts of the town and, and in other towns as well, other cities. Now, you see, this ties in to a big social economic movement called placemaking, which is the new thing in town regeneration. And it's born of places like uh, Detroit and other ultra-deprived places in, in Europe and America where the first people to re-inhabit an area of social deprivation and economic decline... Get a free digital watch. <laughs> yeah. Get uh, free biscuits. No, they, 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 they tend to be artists. artists. Yeah. And, of course, they tend to create recreate a place in their own image. And that, of course, pulls in... Uh, People will go, oh, have you been to High Ashbury? It's so interesting. Yeah. Have you been to the Loft Apartments in Seattle? Have you been to Hoxton? This you is know. what Grayson Perry was saying last yeah. year in his in his wreath lectures. We should pay artists to go into deprived areas because they will bring regeneration and 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 you know class. Absolutely. And this is and this is uh, this is seen as the way forward for 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 urban regeneration. And also, of course, is the way forward for work because all the middle management jobs and middle skill jobs are being taken by. Uh, computers and automation and actually creativity is going to be the new kind of norm for th- th- for how we we regenerate ourselves as a society so they they need people like us don't they they do and they, they need, need to pay be- us they do they do where where should we where should we move to um estonia you're big there already yeah but i, I think i think they're probably better off in estonia than than, than in england where's, where's the most rundown place in uh in bulgaria that's not in England. Oh, it has to be in England, does it? Yeah. Um, uh, Crew, Crew's pretty rough. For, apologies uh, to Crew, but I mean, which is a lovely place. There's, yeah. No, there's it's a, there, a great place actually. Is it? Is yeah. it? Uh, it's, good it's, for railways. No, but it's also good for people. It's the only place where I went to a nightclub where there were eighty-year-olds and fifteen-year-olds in the same nightclub, all dancing together. Mm, and I thought, this they, is society. That sounds a bit dodgy. Um, so- <laughs> No, that was the Dorchester, <laughs> and that was a lot more depressing. But but crew crew uh, honestly, Grimsby crew places like that always the best people. Worst places, best people. I so, found. So what have we learned from from today's podcast? Have we've learned that to be to be right wing is mm. to be a wrong, bad, bad a thing. bad yeah. evil, self centred. Yeah, we're saying that in a kind of impartial way. We are saying that in an impartial yeah. way, and that to be more communal, to be more sharing is more is a better way to live and probably would encourage you to vote on the left wouldn't yes, it yes yes i think, that's, I think that's what we're saying yeah but you yeah. know um but we're not biased we're not biased no so on that note <laughs> i'm off to do some house robbing dave oh, hey, right. hey 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 should we have a competition let's see all those biscuits yeah let's but, <laughs> but also let's have a competition why don't we say Send us a photo of the best thing you nick from a neighbour's house. <laughs> send a photo of you putting back. Send a photo of, of a good deed you've done by returning something that you've nicked to, to, to a neighbour's house or or stealing it, whichever. Either's good. Either's good. Steal something from a neighbour and then put it back. Do your, do your good deed. Yeah. And if show... they catch you, at least you get talking, right? That's right. That's right. That's Guess what it's all about. 
Well, that just about wraps it up, except, of course, I know that our listeners are going to be very keen to hear about the feature biscuit in this podcast. What have you got for us, Dave? Well, our special guest biscuit is tied up very neatly yes. to the whole theme. Uh, because, of course, every time you go to a scout hut or women's institute or community centre... They'll serve up tea and biscuits. They sure do. And there'll always be a plate of biscuits. Yeah. And at the end of the night, there'll yeah. always be one left uneaten. Uh. And it'll be this baby. Oh, no. The rich tea. Not the Lionel rich tea. N- no, Dave. The rich tea biscuit. The, the, the rich tea biscuit. Yeah. So, here we go. Let's, let's give it a little try. Uh. Hmm. Oh, God. Oh. Hmm. So, so dry. Oh, yeah. I don't think no. I can finish this mouthful actually. No, me neither. Should we? Sp- oh, yeah. Should we? Uh, I don't think I can swallow it either. No, no, no. Let's, let's spit it out. Excuse me. <laughs> the auditorium is presented by Dr. David Bramwell and Mr. David Mountfield. The producers are Lance Dan and Andrew Mailing. You can discover more about the show at oddpodcast.com, where you can find out about upcoming events and festival shows. If you'd like to give a talk about something that you're passionate about, then email us at contact at oddpodcast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at oddpodcastuk. Talks from the Auditorium are featured in Earnest Journal, a magazine for the curious and adventurous. If you like the auditorium, then please leave a review for us on iTunes.